darkness. Tears and sighs. She was cold. But she wasn't afraid. I'm Corrie. My co-host is Henrik. We studied media. Fancy that. And today on the podcast we are looking at what last week's film. Didn't we already talk about Suspiria? Oh, oh, we did. Is there an echo in here? I guess there's an echo of this of the episodes past. This is all thanks to Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino, Guadagnino. This is good muscle training for your jaws. Guadagnino. Uh, which we have checked out here twice in this podcast. And in, in this in this podcast called the Guadagnino Lab. Yeah, the Guad, Guadagnino experiment. Yep. Yeah. That off, official, official, well, actually rather unofficial Guadagnino podcast. Yes, Henrik. Uh, yeah, and I suppose you can go on to your hard-on rant at this point about me. <laughs> <laughs> this most definitely is is once again your hard-on showing. Not just Quaratino, <laughs> but you most definitely paid attention. Who was the cinematographer? Once a fucking game. Come on, man. Siam D. Mukti Prom. Siam D. Mukti Prom. Jesus Christ, we just can't escape from one dude. <laughs> yep, no. And we can't escape Mia Goth. Before we jump into the film themes, yeah, we checked out 777 Suspiria last week, the original from Dario Argento, the man of Giallo. And and to anyone who last week was thinking to themselves, why the fuck are we once again talking about age-old film from, from the 70s? The real answer is that, well, it's Thanks to today's film, because I, as I would say, now that we are here today, I guess you also can agree with me on, on the point that when it comes to to the Suspiria remake, it actually does benefit you if you have seen the original, and you can find a much better discussions and much better points. If you have the stepping into point into Suspiria from Argento's film, and then you can actually compare it to Guadagnino's work and try to see how they tackle both the same themes, what themes are different, which film even is better from the two. Well, of course. And uh, from the starting point, from the get-go, I kind of wanted to go with the both of the versions to compare. Yeah. Uh, I guess at this point, it's 
kind of started to show that the Flick Lab is once again slowly going through a transformation phase where we are trying new things on the podcast and we try to shape up the format at least a little bit perhaps to in in the future we will get more and more looks into franchises and in into films where we we can tackle both for example both the original and the sequel in the same episode or uh, tackle the remaining remnants of any given franchise in in one episode and stuff like that we try to become kind of a more even more analytical even more thematic in in the Philip Lab podcast and well Suspiria's are kind of our first attempt like this is us once again testing new waters so in a sense mm. yeah since we're kind of on the off-topic train here i would like to add to that that from the beginning i was really kind of adamant that whatever we do in this lab we're always going to each week just cover one film in one episode that's it it's going to be clear for the audience it's going to be clear for me it's kind of cool to do such of a deep dive to every single movie but then again, there's something that happens after you do this like 110 episodes. And I don't know, uh, do you kind of get tired of the same format? You want to try a little bit different things or the fact of the matter that, for example, if we're going to do this Hellraiser episode, I just really am not going to do any more and uh, like a singular episode for all of the Hellraiser sequels because it doesn't cut that make any sense. It's going to kill the audience. Uh, it's going to just invite uh, law enforcement at our door. The SWAT is going to swarm in. So, no. Yeah, it, like, like when it comes to... Since you mentioned the Hellraiser franchise, which is kind, kind of a ghastly ghost that we have been tracking on with us ever since we dealt with Parker's original film, that there has been the, these notions and discussions brought up by the two of us that Maybe we should tackle the franchise even more, look into the even the later sequels, and we, especially with Hellraiser. The thing really is that fucking going through something like Hellworld or Hellseeker in, in a singular, singular episode format, that would be torture both to us and to the audience. I would yeah. say to the humanity itself. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, but I still want to talk about them, the sequels, but not on, not on, because there is not enough material to draw from, I would say. Or, well, maybe, like, we had a lot to say about the Halloween franchise, so maybe, but I certainly don't. Not, not in case of Hellraiser. Yeah. Okay, tonight's film's director is Luca Guadagnino, and he acquired rights for this film pretty early on. And was it 2007, Henrik, and then first offered the project for David Gordon Green, or as I like to call him, DGG, a director that I do admire for varied skills. He has directed Pineapple Express, Joe, and well, there's even things that I like about his Halloween, even though it's not what I exactly wanted. But the Suspiria project was cancelled due to financing conflicts, and in September 2015, then Gua confirmed he will do it instead as the director. So this this Suspiria it was announced already back in two thousand eight. This uh, DGG guy had also co-written a script 
even with his sound designer. But a new scriptwriter was introduced when Gua introduced his new idea for 2015. And he also announced that the carrying theme of the film would be the uncompromising force of motherhood, which rather baffles me in many ways, but we will get to that. And this is not an exact remake, uh, instead more like an homage or what Gua called the powerful emotion, uh, what he felt inside and he wanted to do his own interpretation of that powerful emotion that he got from the original. Yeah, uh, this is kind of what you would want from a remake. Yeah. It, it, it takes the elements... That the basic elements, it's a dance academy, a academy in Germany. There, there is a Susan O'Banion, a new student in the academy. Turns out the academy is full of goddamn witches. Those basic beats uh, or the basic building blocks are lifted from the original. And the film also, the 2018 version also takes a lot of the story beats from Argento's film. But it like you mentioned, it kind of reinterpretates the the story, the themes, and even those story beats, and molds them into a film that is very much different from what Argento made in '77. Yeah, this is. Uh, I really appreciate that. This feels like an honest project that he wanted to do since he was a little kid. When he first saw the Argento film, when was it? He was he like fourteen years old, and he it just uh, always stayed with him, and so this is not kind of a this kind of a cheap Hollywood remake of some kind of Asian horror film or something like that, in any sense. Uh, so he's taking kind of the basic concepts and having fun with them himself, making completely something basically a completely different movie. Even if if we talk about the colors, like uh, unlike in the original film, which used exaggerated colors. Guadagnino uh, is using these winterish and bleak visuals, very reduced colors, which I kind of dig. They are. Um, in many ways, Guadagnino's work is much more realistic. In, in the way how the witches work, in the way how the world and the characters work. But as you mentioned, also in color, also in sound, this is much more realistic sounding film. And yeah. when it comes to the plot of the movie, that's also something where these films differ very drastically. As we already talked about in last week, Argento Suspiria really doesn't have that much plot in it. You have very linear plot structure that goes through few kind of a major plot points. And that are that about it. It's mostly it's for and foremost it's an experiment in audiovisual style. Whereas Guaracnino's work, it's all about the plot. Like this has so goddamn much plot that the plot itself is drowning underneath the plot. Well, at least we are on the same lines there. I'm sure this will be fun. We don't need to be in our scuffles all the time. No, and, you know, this, this being, what, our 110th episode? Yeah. 109th? 110th, yeah. Yeah, I guess this is a, a good time to actually finally finish off this struggling podcast and get us 
cancelled from the internet. I, I can just let it out right out right here. Right now, I actually think that the 2018 Suspiria is better than Dario Argento's original. Oh, spoilers already. Spoilers already. And now 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 the fanboys, the film nerds can come up and torch the podcast. It was fun ride. It's nice to do this with you, Gary. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks for the fishes and the and the pasted over two years. See you on the next project, man. See you in the next project. Cue the music. Yeah, but um Well I haven't really actually thought about it, which one is better or not. But I guess I I can reach some kind of a conclusion by the end of this episode. But um <laughs> there's a lot of strong elements in this movie as well. And it's interesting what you said about the sound. Because I paid attention to the fact that there is no this kind of a jump scary lifting up of the sound that it would get boosted like with uh, 24 decibels for one spooky scary moment. No, it's it's staying all always kind of pre-leveled. There are no jump scare sound levels in that sense. There ain't. But something that there is that wasn't in the in the Argento's original film is actual songs. Mm. Argento's version, which essentially just you had a song. It has the Goblin's theme, which as you pointed out, the film uses constantly repeatedly scene after scene it's it's the coupling's themes yeah. so whereas what the 2018 version this has different tracks this have has different types of music this actually even has some goddamn songs in it with actual lyrics <clears throat> yeah that is true when it comes to music we have the radiohead's frontman or singer thom york he was first a bit reluctant to become the musician for this movie and but somehow after months of convincing it seemed that Luca Guaragnino was able to get his wish and get the guy to do it and uh, I think this is a really nice idea for example what the Nine Inch Nails's uh, frontman Trent Reznor has been doing lately he did the soundtrack for the dragon tattoo and you know, you have a better memory, but he's been all over the place with pretty pretty great results, in my opinion. And especially this kind of uh, the the kind of people who are who have been doing this band stick for a long time are looking for something new. Maybe they're already out of ideas in their band. It's cool to see that they they are doing something like this. It is, and of course, for, also for the artists taking this project, the projects. It offers them also the possibility to kind of flex their musical muscles more. Try different type of styles, be more and more experimental in what they are doing, because they are no longer kind of limited by the previous work that they have done as a band and the fan base and the fan base's expectations. Instead, for example, when they work for films, they kind of get more and more, they get, they get a blank slate that is being offered to them by the director. 
that they have a film which may completely differ differ in style from the type of music they do as a band. Yeah. And hence now they can be kind of start from the scratch and see what do I feel and start once again make mu music purely based on their in their first feeling of the material. Yeah, and like uh, the pre predecessor here, the music was done prior to filming it, or at least prior to sh seeing the film. Uh, this was a con conscious choice from Guadagnino for some end. Coming to casting, we have Dakota Johnson, of course, playing the lead. Perhaps sometimes criticized for her acting, but uh, seems to be doing a very nice job indeed here, and I have no problem with that. And she's playing Susie Banyan and did quite a lot of the dancing, I understand, herself, wherever she was, it, it was possible to do. But there are, of course, very challenging dancing parts that were then left to some kind of a really experienced dancer because some of those moves were really challenging. There's been a lot of uh, criticizing and also praising of the dancing here. Well, as a, like a huge cultural ingester of dancing, of course, I, I can tell you all about dancing here. Well, no, but it's weird looking at some of these. You see something artistic in some film, whether it be music or acting or dancing, and then you get these completely different ends of the spectrum in the opinions. Uh, I mean, dancing, come on, there should be pretty clear distinction whether something, if dancing is bad or whether dancing is good, I would think. Certainly the type of dancing that is depicted here, I think it's very experimental or... It looks exactly like a dance piece made by a dance academy. Like, now, now talking about dance piece. Okay. Like, an, an, an artistic installation that is done through dance. Mm -hmm. What that would look like. Quartino's film captures that. Uh, kind of a performance. It captures that performance extremely well. Then we have Tilda Swinton or Lutz Ebersdorf. I'm a little bit confused. But uh, filmmakers claimed for a long time that there would be this uh, first-time actor introducing Lutz Ebersdorf, in fact, as Dr. Joseph Klemper. And um, even Guaragnino called the claim that Tilda Swinton would be playing the part of Klemper as complete fake news, quoting. And then there was uh, Stella Stavino from the cast and crew saying that uh, this role is played by an actual professor, Lutz Ebersdorf, a psychoanalyst, and not at all a professional actor. Even further, in October 2018, Swinton finally told to the New York Times that Dr. Klemper is indeed played by Lutz Eberstorff, and Lutz Eberstorff <laughs> is played by her. And uh, she was wearing even prosthetic penis in the end scenes. And Guadagnino also, in uh, subsequent interviews, then came out with this this this, this thing and uh, was talking about uh, Swinton and Eberstorff. And um, this is this is kind of an interesting way how we have a female actor playing a male role. Guess you can re read a lot of things into it. You can at least you can read Swinton's 
earlier role as Orlando into it. Even though when it comes to being Klemper, it is much more... It, it takes the, the whole uh, playing a man character aspect much further than what was done in Orlando. But essentially, Swinton is no stranger to playing male characters. Okay, that's good context to this. I think it was Swinton who said also that uh, there was never any intention to, to fool the audience or, or fool the people regarding this, this whole thing. But uh, if you look at the comments that I just read here, for example, Quarak Nino calling it complete fake news that it would be someone else than the Lutz Eberstorf playing the role. That is kind of misleading. It is, even though in this case I am on the defense of misleading the audiences. Yeah. Most likely the reason why they took this road, why they denied Swinton's part in Klemper, was so that her acting, that the whole performance of Klemper would have the possibility to kind of breathe and just exist during the hectic first weeks when the film came out. Because had it been an admitted openly that Swinton now is playing a male character, essentially what it would have, would have meant for the film would have been that every single critic an audience member during those first weeks, they, they would have just, you know, constantly been pay, paying attention how Swinton pulls it off. And it would have kind of stolen the audience's gaze from the film itself, from the performance itself, and from the plot. And everybody would have, would have just been transfixed on Swinton's performance as Klemper. Yeah, and I think it brings a certain kind of a mysticity to the character. Well, of course, you notice that uh, in especially in some scenes, it seems that uh, his character has kind of a high-pitched voice. And there's something off about that that face that even when I was looking at it for the first time, I, I had no idea that Swinton was playing the role. I felt there was something off about this guy. And I don't know. I, on the other hand, must confess that I was completely fooled. Okay, nice. <laughs> like, I... I... Originally, I saw Suspiria in the theaters when it came out. It had been in Finland in distribution for something like two or th three weeks before I checked it out. So, already at that point, the American commentators had... They, they, I, I, I was still, I had been able still to avoid being spoiled. What Swinton exactly? What is the Swinton catch of the film? But I had heard that there, there is a hidden Swinton performance, and I was kind of even looking for that myself when I was watching the film, and I did pick out Helena Marcos. Really. And I was certain that, oh, oh, that's what everybody's talking about. And then three days went past me after seeing the film in theaters. And only then I found out that, no, actually, Swinton was also playing Klemper. <laughs> Definitely didn't notice that about 
Helena Marcus's character might be because I'm not so experienced with Tilda Swinton as an actress. So. Well, ne- neither am I, and I didn't find any real telltale signs. But Marcus was under such of a heavy prosthetics yeah. that you know, from that ra- rubber suit, it was obvious that that's Swinton. Especially if you were looking for hidden Tilda Swinton performance from the film. But that that I don't know if they were meaning to make the Klemper role to be some kind of a experience that there's something off about this character. I don't think there's anything to be gained, at least, if you feel that way. Anyway, then we have Mia Goth, as we mentioned, Sonny, the staggering girl in this podcast. And then Jessica Harper in this podcast also last week, playing the lead role in the original Suspiria. And Harper was asked by Guadagnino to appear here, but under the provision that you must speak German, because it is not enough for me to get the original Jessica Harper into my film. Must speak, speak German. Harper plays Anke, the missing wife of Dr. Kemper. And essentially, Harper's role in 2018 Suspiria, it kind of boils down into extended cameo. But I can believe that as, as as an actress who appeared in the original film, gave this now iconic cult performance as as the original Suspiria survivor girl, it's kind of a nice gesture from Harper and also from Guaracnino to have her appear in the film and even give her a steal. Still, even though it's a short one, but it still is a real character with some actual real lines and a real place in the movie and its story. Yeah, when I was watching this film, I didn't realize that it's it's actually Jessica Harper. There's been quite a few years in between, certainly. Maybe I noticed that there's something familiar here going on, but I, I didn't think about it really at all. Locations for the filming... Principal photography began in Grand Hotel Campo dei Fiori in Varese in, the, in late 2016 and uh, was finally finished in March 2017. Italy and Berlin being the main shooting areas for Varese and Berlin. Then there is the police station shot in Mitte in Germany. When it comes to these locations and what they have in them, there's quite a lot of attention to detail, to how it's uh, propped up. There's this uh, dressings and furniture from different decades. And there is the German Bauhaus feeling for geometric feel and modernist architecture. Then there is the costume designer Giulia Piersanti bringing vintage clothing. Colorful, but not necessarily bright, she said. And something that I noticed uh, is that the filming conditions were quite awful for the cast and crew because they were in this hotel shooting at the winter time, and the heating was bad. And uh, well, if anyone's ever been in Italy in the winter or anywhere in the southern Europe, you know the deal. It's terrible. You can, especially if it's a big building, and especially if it has floor made out of some kind of a rock material. It's gonna be extremely cold and unpleasant. 
there's some heater somewhere in the corner, but you cannot heat the entire thing. Which does fit quite nicely into this film and the time period that it's depicting. Because something that also is a big difference between 2018 and 77 is the locations and also the time period. Um, in Argento's version, the locations at the time period, they didn't really matter. It was 77 because that was, that was when the film was shot. And it essentially it was Germany just because any random European country that's not Italy. But in the 2018 version, the locations, they all actually matter. Like they all have a clear purpose. That there's a very clear reason why the film is set to 1977. And there is a very clear and prominent reason why the location is Berlin. Like it's so in your face that you can't even escape the fact that this is 77, uh, 77's Berlin. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... It's uh, giving, uh, it's making it absolutely clear where we are and what's happening. So much so that the, uh, this, what is happening outside is interacting with what is happening in the dance academy, even though it doesn't really, in many cases, it doesn't serve any purpose. They hear some bombing outside. And did you hear that? That's clearly a bomb. And then it goes into some kind of explanation. It kind of, I would counter argue that it, well, it doesn't necessarily serve story purpose it does serve a thematic purpose because if if you are talking about the themes of the film i would say the two perhaps the two major themes to discuss here today would be the first one would be feminism and the feminist angle of, of the film and the second one i would say would be the facet legacy and national guilt of berlin and the kind of a story of a country trying to reform itself after a fascist past. Well, if if I drop the question to you, mm -hmm. what do you feel? How? I mean, you originally you were the one who brought the feminist angle mm. up last week. You are the person who mentioned it, and I actually was kind of I, I did notice that. And I had been thinking the feminism in the case of Ario, uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria, but I last week I chose to hold my tongue and not say anything on the subject matter, which is the reason why it flew so fast by, by everyone who has listened to that episode. The reason why I did that was because I did know that already that we are going to to land on the whole feminist point in in Guadagnino's film. Okay. And I didn't want today's episode, which perhaps is slowly turning out to be the main episode of the two Suspiria episodes we we do are currently doing. And I, I didn't want that today every single argument would essentially be just a rehash of what was said last week. So and I not every argument would start with, well, as we said last week, as it has already been mentioned, as we noted with Dario Argento's film. And because of that, I mainly stayed quiet during the uh, during certain points in the discussion 
back then. But to come back to the whole feminist angle, I would say that they both both films they, they do have a feminist element in them. Dario Argento's film, in my opinion, it it kind of to be absolutely brutally honest, it kind of wastes it, in my opinion. It fumbles with it. To a point where I'm not entirely certain if if the feminism that you see in 77 Suspiria is there because Dario Argento really wanted it to be there um, and not just because I would actually one of the screenwriters was a woman. Well, actually, what I was doing there, I may have may have misspoke a bit, but I meant that what he is doing, Dario Argento in his original, it's if you want to see it that way, he is basically doing the opposite of feminism. It's some kind of a patriarchal context. You look at the whole Snow White, how it came uh, integrated into the story, and Susie Banyan is basically the Snow White in a satanic, satanic witchcraft cult kind of a story environment, where, where of course, uh, everybody, all the women who come together as a group and create this coven, or women in general, when they create groups, come together, do something as a group, then they become evil, apparently is the argument that or that's how it goes often in these cases but for me that is rather kind of a weird way to to to, to put it first of all we are talking about witches so witches are witches <laughs> but th- this is it seems to me that every goddamn time that we are now talking about a film where we have women then it means that if they're if they're doing whatever they're doing somebody can find always some kind of a way to find that this is patriarchal or this is this is wrong and i think this kind of argumentation is the case here sure we don't have like male witches i i haven't seen really male witches would that be then vampires i don't know what would be the the kind of the the way to look at that but um i don't i don't really find anything about motherhood or feminism here certainly yeah you now meaning 2018 or 77 as as the case from which you don't find well kind of both okay that that's interesting because i or very heavily do especially on on 2018 case okay so this is pro feminism or anti in my opinion this very heavily is pro feminism hmm Suspiria is very feminist film. If you, if you ask me, the main difference that I find between this and Argento is that while yes, both film films, as you pointed out, they have a mostly female cast where there really ain't that many prominent male roles, and they both deal with a topic of of a society or a place that is being controlled by women, a group of women. Mm-hmm. It, essentially, they are kind of a studies on, on feminine power struct, uh, structures. So uh, immediately when you have only women kind of society somewhere, then it's pro-feminism. Uh... Well, it very easily starts to be that because that's presentation and it 
by default, it starts to give more prominent roles within your story to female actors. It more has female characters talking to each other about basically all the subjects of your film. And it also means that a lot of the major plot points of your story is going to revolve around the female characters. Yeah, could be. And you had something about the dancing being a ritual, which is connected to human body and fertility. In many religions and in many schools of thought, usually dancing is being seen as as something that, as you mentioned, is tied down to to body control and fertility, especially into body control, because something that that professional dancing is, it precisely is you controlling your body. Like the amount, take, take a ballet dancer, for example, which was what Susan O'Banion of, of the 77 version wanted to be. Ballet dancers, they constantly have to kind of push their bodies to almost to a breaking point. Like, like the, the, amount of stress, the physical stress that they put on to their bodies, it's actually, I, I would even go as far as say that it can be horrifying. And there is a very good reason why, for example, the professional careers for ballet dancers can be so short and wh why they may retire so quickly from, from dancing, because you have to do almost uncomprehensible feats with your body. Yeah, in my part, when we are dwelling on, on this womanhood or motherhood or feminism, yeah, this is actually what Agnino saying it. And in his opinion, there's a perfidious form of motherhood as a core theme of the film. And I find it kind of bizarre because I don't find anything that motherhoodian here, more like the Oh, come on, come on. B basically, all the major characters are or claim to or try to be mothers. There, there is, um, there is Madame Leblanc, who is kind of, kind of a symbolical mother to Susan O'Banion. And then you have Helena Marcos, who very much is the mother of the of the common and yeah then but... you have the mother superiorum who is the mother of all witches some kind of a primordial force or entity who as the film lays out has been existing already before god and satan and yeah in in dialogue sense what all these characters are talking about half time of the film it is about being a being someone's mother or becoming someone's mother or leaving a mother behind you can only have one mother yeah. you can not have any other mother than me than i okay yeah 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 i see what you're doing it, 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 but yeah the, the film almost takes the motherhood to a point where motherhood is being compared to godhood there's kind of a judeo-christian worldview or attitude when it comes to these characters trying to be a mother. When Mother Superiorum eventually shows up in the film, 
Okay, but the first thing she has, she kind of has this religious or or ideological cleansing of the coven, and then she crowns herself as the ultimate leader of that coven, which is something that she can do as an entity that has existed before God, which kind of harkens back to what you have in Bible. I am thy Lord, you cannot have other God than me. Yeah, but all of the dialogue pertaining to mother or motherhood is a facade. Every time they mention, mention for example, if it comes to Madame Blanc, Blanc, she is doing only this in order to get Susie Banyan deeper into the, into the society that she is in. And she sees something special about Susie Banyan, and it seems that she's starting to little by little show more of the society that she is a part of. And this is only for, not because she wants to be a, like a mother-like character to her, it's, it's just a facade, basically, to get Susie Banyan where she wants her to be. Same goes for, same goes for the, 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 the witch herself. She's only kind of mother on paper. I don't know. I'm I'm not that harsh with Madame Blanc. When it comes to Helena Marcos, most definitely. Yeah, well, yeah. most def- definitely. Yeah. That uh, she is driven uh, purely that the selfish need to extend her life. Yeah. But yeah. with Blanc, Blanc, you gotta have this art of someone who, as as a part of the coven has to follow the, follow its rules and has to follow the the kind of a reparational democracy that they have in the common the one who is elected by vote to lead dictates how we are going to go and with blank there are kind of two sides primary she has to follow the rules of the leader of the common unless that the leader would be her. Yeah, yeah. It is not. It's it's Marcos. So she's bound to follow whatever Marcos says. Yeah. But in yeah. in a lot of the scenes within Suspiria, Blanc is even quite openly protesting against Marcos's plans. Uh, and at, at least she, tur- she turns does around. seem quite hesitant. Yeah, at least she turns around because uh, in the beginning it might just be that she is just doing doing what is uh, seen as uh, the right way to deal in inside the coven or where to drive the narrative inside the coven. But then she starts to build this real human relationship with Susie and is starting to be, yes, uh, actually caring about uh, her well-being at the end. She says that she can wipe all of this away if she wants to uh, and she would not remember anything about these horrific scenes that she was witnessing. So in that sense, yeah, okay. There, there is that. Yeah, and and as Kemper puts it out in in the film, which also is my favorite quote of the movie, love and manipulation they share houses very often. They are frequent bedfellows, and that's also mm. something that kind of ties down into this film's notion of motherhood. It's not just kind of we usually see motherhood as. As kind of pure and giving, mm. you you get warm, you get embrace, you get care from your mother, but that's not always the case. And it easily also when it comes to comes to love, as it 
is supposed to come with, with motherhood. We, we also have this notion that there are many forms of, of love, but none is as strong as mother's love for her child. But essentially with all love, there also always exists a realm of manipulation. And the risk that that love may lead into at least occasional manipulation. Um, but when it comes to motherhood, there is an essential part that I think you need. is a relationship uh, with, with a male character. Uh, but it's more like the opposite what the film is doing. It's There are single ladies in the academy and uh, they are showing male-hating behavior, I would say in the scenes where they are playing with this one guy's penis and uh, similar acts. And we have the, what I would probably see as looking at her behavior, behaviorally lesbian, if you if you will, Madame Blanc. And, well, aside from Madame Blanc, I think many of them are just pretending to be motherly in order to achieve their satanistic goals. Well, at least many of them are. I am hesitant to say all of them, except Madame Planck, but many, many most definitely are. But uh, once again, uh, sticking to the, the discussion about motherhood, in, in the film's case, it kind of presents to you, and this is my reading, which may be rat's ass for all its all its worth, but my took was that it presents to you kind of a kind of a spiritual notion of motherhood. This is something that I also was noticing in in the dance number that they present the main dance number of Volk, mm -hmm. in which I also kind of saw a type of a symbolic simulation of birth. Or rebirth during that that one moment of the dance, the performance when the dancers are kind of crawling underneath each other's legs, mm -hmm. especially with with that that shiparesque costumes that they are wearing. That it's it's almost like someone is standing upwards, and then somebody crawls crawls underneath between your legs, as in giving birth. But oh. outside of that, the, the motherhood and the, the motherly connection between the characters, it's, it's kind of the case of an adoptive family. Adoptive same-sex family. Kind of. I think we should talk about German autumn at this point. Or German fall, however you want to say that. Yeah, that, that crazy time in, in German. Yeah, was a series of kidnappings and murder in 1977 by basically far-left organizations such as the RAF and BFBL. And it's it's claimed that the German autumn is included in the story in order to explore themes of generational guilt. What? But if you look at the film, there's no generational guilt to be found from the dancing at least, nor in the witches in my opinion. But you look at the character of Dr. Klemper, she he might have some kind of generational awareness. But it's like uh, this awareness to stop the spread of evil wherever it might be found, for example, in this dance academy. I don't know. I, on the other hand, 
I found a hell of a lot of guilt and anger, kind of a justified hate from this film that would seem to stem from the the Nazi days of Germany. That the first giveaway, uh, perhaps the biggest, is as you mentioned the German autumn, which does play a repeated B plot on, on the background. We are following essentially as the story progresses. We are also following the kind of the life cycle of German autumn or or the Bader Meinhof or Röde Army faction, Rough. And the, their story kind of goes hand in hand with the film story as it plays out in in the news news readings and news reports. So that 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 would be kind of the first touching point into 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 the whole national guilt. And then, of course, as as you like you mentioned, there is the character of Kemper who is kind of the he is the main modification of that guilt as a man who has lost something but who also has had a, a small really minute role to play into that that loss he is the the shrink whose wife originally for years begged that they would leave berlin when the nazis were rising to power and uh, Klemper repeatedly has shot her down and refused to leave being certain that they can kind of just live through that phase and just kind of survive mm -hmm. and as it's as the opening of the film makes makes it clear uh, both of them did not only Klemper survived but this is the a completely different kind of guilt than what I understand as some kind of a German generational guilt. So Klemper is missing uh, missing his wife that was killed or or the girlfriend. I don't know if they were married, but and and the the kind of the dancing academy resonates with him as the as because the methods are that they use are something that he is able to distinguish and connect to the Nazi regime, but. But there is not like a shame that this this happened, and we as Germans did this type of thing going on. Um, I would say it's in the background. It it kind of yeah. plays down with with rough. It plays down with as as you worded out male hating ways of the coven, or the attitudes that the coven has. The coven at the end of the film, the coven strictly works out they accuse, their accusation to Klemper, which is by proxy meant to be an accusation towards the Germany itself. Okay. Uh, so there, there you would kind of have have the hate. You can also see the hate in, in many ways how in, in the scene where the witches are dehumanizing and objectifying the two cops that come to the academy and they are put under a spell. They are hypnotized, mm -hmm. not to realize what happens around them, and the, which is essentially strip them naked and laugh at them yeah. and kind of a, toy with their bodies. 
Yeah, and they could. So there is kind of there there is that sense of 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 hate. Well, yeah, that that goes goes within the common and would be stemming from from the years long gone past. It's it's also revoked in in the notions how Madame Blanc previously had made certain sure that the academy itself would survive to throw the Nazi de, Nazi years of, of Germany. So would you say that uh, actually the witches that are doing the pins tickling could, could be said to be the kind of the rest of the world making fun of the the, the German German forces or the German entity or something like that? Oh, that would be kind of... The... I would say that what the witches are, they present kind of the... Well, it's it's hard hard to work out, yeah, yeah, yeah. even even in Finland. It, what, what I'm driving at here. Yeah, I think it, what, but, what it would, what it could be is that 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 what the what the witches represent would be the kind of the, the the what the Germans would see as other people seeing themselves as, or making fun of them. To me, the the witches present Germany as a nation trying to kind of a rise rise up from the from the fall of the Reich and kind of a failing in it because we easily we want to believe that the way how how beating fascism works is that you have a fascist regime you have Hitler's Germany which is very bad and then you kick his ass in the war and then Fascism ends. It, it just stops. But it doesn't. It it really doesn't. Like you... At the end of the war, Hitler shot himself. The Nazis lost and the Reich ended. But the fascists didn't go away. No. They shared their skins, more or less, and they find found new roles in prominent positions of the German society. They became judges. They became cops. They became industry leaders. Yeah, it's quite factory owners. Quite disturbing that so many people who believed in the, the in the Third Reich ideologies just were given a fair path fair path to go and you know, of course, not all of the Nazis were killing people, so there are just these people who hold, hold still these ideologies that might be just kind of dormant and passed on from uh, generation to generation and just explode again well yeah but at the, at the same time even though it, it it is bit disturbing it can be disheartening it still is kind of understandable mm-hmm. because even though I'm, I'm in no way i have to stress out in no way am i making the argument mm-hmm. that what the nazis did was was right most definitely not it was a crime against humanity, and even today, it is very uncomprehensible act that they pulled off. And I'm not just talking about Holocaust, but every other aspect of Nazi regime as well. But at the same time, this is kind of where we land into a more, kind of a, a harder thing to understand and explain. Yeah, yeah. But... At at the end of these things, at the end of the Nazi regime, it didn't come down 
punishing those that were morally corrupt, it came down to checking out who broke the law. That That's essentially what happened in Germany. A hell of a lot of people who supported Nazi, uh, Nazi Reich, who supported the ideas, who took part, even prominent part, in that regime and its crimes, were never com convicted because in the end they didn't broke the German law. And that's really what comes down into the question, are you being jailed? Are you being executed? Executed? It comes down essentially, and in in law abiding, in law following societies, it kind of would also have to become down to the question: Did you break the law? Yeah, I would like to talk about the brutality in the film, so we just have to move on to this. So there, there would be. What you can definitely find in the school is this senseless amount of brutality all the, all the time and a kind of cult believe in something greater than the dancers are. They are in the dance academy to be slaves for an evil plan, albeit um, not seen as evil by its worshippers. But uh, while the dancers uh, or so-called, you could call the dancers the citizens of Germany, are blind to its influence on them. The dancers or the citizens, they are given free housing, for example, maybe some kind of statement against socialism, I don't know, in exchange for this unabated loyalty to following instructions. And there's something hidden from plain sight. It's the, the real methods that the witches use, only to be shown finally to Susie, of course. There is the because there's the and, there's the because there's the Marcus's right hand man, right hand man I'm saying Hermann Göring basically, or in other words right hand woman Madame Blanc, she, she, Madame Blanc she has built a real emotional relationship with Susie as we were discussing, but that will not do because holding on to on the power it requires removing those pesky emotions goddammit. it, and which is what the Marcos is doing, and Madame Blanc says. Quote, we must aim upwards, we need to get you in the air. air. And that's exactly what Susie is certainly doing at the end when she is revealed to be the monster herself. And I, I would say, to, to go back to the whole, whole fascism, you kind of hit the nail in its head when, when you mentioned that the witches of the film, they are kind of a proxy for the German people. Yeah. Because what is happening in the dance academy in the movie is kind of what happened in Germany. Kind of. Yeah. Following its its climb from from the from the Reich. The yeah. The creepy thing of course here is that the, the Reich survives at the end. It it does and it does not. It kind of a, achieves a certain type of proto state where you have done away with the wrong leader. If we are to take the, to stick with the, the Nazi metaphor, mm. Madame Planck being Hermann Göring, what you have at the end of the film is the death of Hitler and the main, main generals right. of his army. And what you have from there, you have the blood and the body 
you have the rubble and you have something rising up from there. Just the same way as Germany rose up from the rubble after the Second World War ended. Yeah. This is this is a time period that is it's it's been referenced as the economic miracle of of Germany, which happened when East and West were separated into two warring factions, and the American money started to kind of flow into the West Germany to support it in its attempt to become more democratic, to become more free, and to break away from the systematic and oppressive past that it had had under Hitler. But like with the witches of the academy, the Germany didn't actually, the West Germany here especially, mm-hmm. what what happened in the East, it's it's completely its own book, God damn it! but in, in the West Germany, it didn't happen really fluently. What we had was a hell of a lot of attitudes People, uh, these being the Nazis that once again rose to prominent civilian positions in the German society and in the methods used. Because something that was in, in the heart of, of the, the kind of a rising left ideologies of the German autumn era and preceding that was the new younger generations feeling that Germany was unwilling to face and admit its past, that the Nazi history it had, that they were disenfranchised with the German, with, with the older Germans and Germany itself as a nation, as they perceived that Germany just wants to kind of sweep the whole Nazi thing under the rug and never just mention it again. And at the same time, as they were raising, voicing out their, their, their displeasure of this, what they faced was uh, political alliances that were done with other countries and power figures that not all the time were actually that morally upstrong themselves. Yeah, there were dubious nations and new dubious leaders that the German wa- Germany was willing to shake hands with, and when they, oppo- you know, raised their discomfort with this, then they met the police brutality, and this kind of started to escalate the situation more and more, into a point where not uh, where the left left sympathizers were st- were being branded as enemies of the state yeah when police started to patrol the streets with with machine guns when heavy heavy armored vehicles started to roll on the streets this was all done in the name of fighting against rough fighting against Bader meinhof and it kind of escalated into very draconian laws like for example the the law that prohibited the now captured and imprisoned rough leaders from having any human contact. That also included their legal presentation. They were isolated from their own defense lawyers. And that's something that happened in Germany itself. And in many ways, that's also what happens in in the dance academy. That the witches talk a hell of a lot about giving women freedom 
that their whole spiel about their living here is free because we want to support your financial freedom money being something that can be used as a as a way to control mm -hmm. and force control upon you so oh. on that man on, on that regard that the whole we understand women's need for financial freedom it's a good thing but when you... and it's progressive thing from the academic side but at the same time they they openly kill and exclude everyone who rises against their will and wishes they they have that eye glasses which who works as a goddamn surveillance system for the coven yeah and they are wi com completely willing to to hypnotize to kind of blind your eyes from seeing the what goes on inside the academy they are willing to torture you if you voice out against them yeah, it's yeah. a very draconian system in the in the end that the witches have put on in the academy but in the end if you try to look uh, like like literal interpretation of the nazi regime versus this story you cannot pull it completely in, in in this parallel because there's a lot of things that are different of course nazi regime fell and here we have susie banion who basically rises but with certain caveats of course but i don't think it's even meant to be interpreted in the in this way i think it's just finding different kinds of inspirations from uh the 1977 of germany west germany and putting some elements here and there but it's it's not meant to be like the third reich literally uh, or even not or even necessarily kind of figuratively it's just and and uh, when you have these historical pieces about what happened in the 1977 west germany at the time i think it's kind of like um it's kind of supporting the story kind of uh, of what have what's happening in the academy but then again these are very different beasts then these are these are actual things that happened in West Germany, and then we have uh, a witchcraft academy hardly really analogous with each other. But you see that they have similar elements. But but then what? It's it's not really. It's just pieces here and there. Yeah, uh, I agree with you completely on the point that it's not a presentation of the Reich itself. Yeah. But, um, but to me, I, I read it as a representation of the 1977s Germany. Mm. Kind of the, the interior mindset that the society, West Germany, had during that time. To me, the academy is mirroring what was happening in, in the West Germany during those times. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a mirror image that has the witch shit kind of a glued on to it kind of it's a i think it uh, happens in varying degrees of success but uh just to expand on that uh, what we were talking about the the way that the, the, the violence is here and how it might uh, be compared to something else uh, as soon as you challenge the evil in this film the opponents will be crushed literally because there's this very bone crushing check on one's body during this one dance scene and the film could as well as be seen as some kind of a trump age warning perhaps and this is definitely something that is uh, i i definitely believe believe that luca guaracnino had the present modern day politics also in mind when he was making this film 
this could be kind of a Trump age warning to how easily the overall political narrative can morph, even if your leader is an inept imbecile, mind you, but the narrative gets morphed nonetheless if you are not careful. And the references uh, to the historic events around 77, I do agree that they are a supportive voice in the narrative, but in a ways that may not be immediately obvious to the viewer right away. I would say some of them are, not all of them. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a lot that goes on behind. For example, the the whole fact that this is a Suspiria remake and we are talking about the Witcher's Coven, because Nazis themselves are also has not a a great one, but still a connection to to witchcraft. Not just the the way how Nazis were kind of obsessed about occult ideas, but also the way how the Nazis were trying to use witches as a justification for their actions. Recordedly, as a Reichsführer, Himmler, who was back in the day overseen by SS officer Rudolf Levin, formed uh, a Hexen Sonderkommando unit, which was a group of, of historians and scientists whose, um, whose purpose was to carry out an archival survey to witch trials that had happened in the past. And this was like a major overtaking. It comprised over 30,000 cases essentially going through all the German witch trials, filing them up, marking them down for history. The aim for the whole process was to scientifically prove that Roman Catholic Church and through the Roman Catholic Church, the Jews had orchestrated the mass killings of German Aryan women, which then later on was to, was used mm -hmm. to strengthen the whole narrative of the Jewish shadow kapal who wants to kill the Aryan race, yeah. hates the purity of Germany. We were talking about like, and what? from which Germany has to defend itself by the max, mass ex excommunication and in the end, the mass killing of the Jewish population. Right, right, right. Totally comparable. What was it like 30,000 people possibly? killed if even that and then millions of Jews but yeah 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 absolutely compar comparable and then there is the uh B bflp the whole flight hijack in the background of the story which is seemingly also this senseless violence and its goals are rather small if you think about it or ultimately not viable if you're trying to do something well this is the same with the witches who seem to be doing what they're doing simply because they're witches and they're using violence as the answer to any dialogue challenging their own narrative. Essentially the same as PFLP. The plane is also a closed space in a way that the Dancing Academy is and the way that the dancers are financially forced to maintain the, the status quo, they can't skydive out of the airplane, but ultimately such spaces or institutions or societies, covens, they will come to an end. 
either there's a smooth landing as in a transition to something or then there's a crash landing as in the fall of the third reich love usually wins and i think this 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 film could work with a sequel i could see that because there's things that you could play with it it could uh, it could in narrative sense at least when it comes to thematical sense i'm not entirely sure because i kind of feel that well, it it depends where the sequel would be placed. Yeah, but what time and what country? Oh, oh. If if it would try to st- stick in Germany, for example, nineteen seventy-eight, I would say that would be a missed uh, opportunity because if you ask me, two thousand eighteen version, it kind of a completely and exhaustingly uses the, the whole. Germany during those times. Yeah, we already know that Guadagnino has been planning for, was it a trilogy? But he has been planning for sequels for for this film. At least it was the case before he had finished everything with Suspiria. And the name of the Suspiria was supposed to be what? Suspiria Part 1, but was changed to Suspiria so that it could be thought as more of as its its own unit and respected for that. And uh, that's a good move. And so I don't know if these sequels are still on the table after seeing the box office results of this film. I don't know if they were impressive enough to continue. But um, I think in horror sense, it's pretty much exactly what you would expect. The budget was kind of like uh, in the upper end of the horror movies, like 20 million, was it? And now there's a lot of these cheap horror films made for 10 million or or even less. So, uh, and how much this carved in? I don't know, but this is definitely a film that polarized the critics. Uh, some people loved it, some people hated it. And I, I think there might be room for, for more. Hard to say, of course, if it's financially good idea. Hard to say. Then again, you have to remember that also Argento himself was considering considering sequels for, for decades. And oh God, how that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> and well... Guadagnino was thinking about uh, setting this next part into 1212, the year 1212, where the mother Marcus would be would be uh, in some kind of a situation. Anyway, moving on, did you notice the sickle in the film? They used this sickle type of tool, a typical communist symbol to puncture through the twisted bodies. Uh, I noticed it even though I didn't read it to communism. Yeah. To me, it was more of a could be, but it, it was a claw, yeah, and it kind of uh, reminded me of, of of the circle of a moon, which once again, in in my reading, reads it back to the whole feminism angle and the female power angle of, of the film. To me, the question I found myself asking repeatedly when it came to objects and things I found feminine was is this film depicting toxic femininity? Hmm. Hard to say or somebody would say say that this film is like a, a big hurrah for female empowerment. <laughs> in and in in certain ways. I actually agree with that. I I see this as a female empowering movie. Granted a big part of that is is when you compare this one to the Argento's original. As as we already established, Argento's film was kind of a retelling of a of a fairy tale. 
Snow White or something of that sort. And what you have with the old fairy tales, you kind of also have these anti-womanistic attitudes. Like you, you have the main character who might be a, a young girl or a really pretty woman. And then you have the bad guy who uh, quite often is an old crooked woman or an evil stepmom. Uh, definitely they chose Dakota Johnson for also her looks into this role, I would argue tonight. But uh, maybe as being some kind of a uh, character that it's easy to for Madame Blonde to go like, oh, this is looks this looks interesting. We have a pretty lady and she's, she's dancing really well. I don't know if they were pulling something like this. I don't know, but I would make the case that Jessica Harper in the original most definitely was chosen because of that. Because mm. the way how in the original Jessica Harper's Susie presents herself, it's once again, it's very much sticking into the, the fairy tale role of a of a good woman, mm -hmm. which means that she's someone who wants to be in servitude to others. So uh, Jessica Harper, Susie's main goal in the movie, the only goal really that she truly has is, is to become a ballet dancer, someone who performs mm -hmm. to the excitement of the others. And through this, uh, th through the act of per performance, is in servitude to those who she per performs to. Certainly, yeah, yeah. Also, in the origin of there is the whole mystery plot: what the fuck is going on in this dance academy? Gasp! It's the witches. But like with Suspiria 2018, also with 1977 Suspiria, Susie herself ain't the main character interested in the mystery. In Argento's film, Susie kind of is just be feeling drowsy and trying to get her dance moves. It's, it's the other characters who introduce to her that the whole mystery aspect, where are all these ladies going to, through, going to and try to find an answer to that question. Susie herself rises to the opportunity only in the final moments of the film when we reach the climax. So Susie really isn't, in, in Argento's film, Susie really isn't driving her own motives. True. You have to ask from, or, or from the largely female casted film, who then is. Yeah, it's just like, like, God damn, I came here to dance and now all this shit is happening. Now I have to look what, yeah. what, 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 what's behind this. Uh, precisely. And the answer who is behind that is... A group of women who actually are chasing goals that serve solely them. The, the film makes the point that the reason why mm. witches do the stuff they do is to get more power and get more money or wealth, riches. The witches are, are looking to gain something for themselves. And Argento frames these people as being, well... A, really bad people who should actually be, die and be burned at the end of the film. And through Helena Marcos, also very goddamn ugly and hideous and something that you most definitely should stab into the neck. 
and would not think would be would be Helena Marcos if you have seen the original would not come into your mind. I was for, lost for a second. Like this is Helena Marcos seriously, this kind of high pitched voice, uh, not very impressive uh, or witch looking character, but. Yeah, then there is the final twist, and you know that there's something else going on, and who is the twist? Uh, yeah. yeah, and in the 2018 case, that that final twist that you mentioned, mm. the the whole mater superiorum thing, that is the final twist of the film. That is actually the thing that the, the, the thing that in Guadagnino's version turns the tables on their head. Yeah, I kind of like the, that. 2018 Suspiria very much follows the the whole selfless, pure character who does not even have a sexual relationship with, with men, has to fight against the evil woman who wants things for themselves. Quartinino's mm-hmm. it, it, version also, for a long time it follows this. And then the Mother Suspiriorum to plot twist happens at the end of the film. And all of a sudden it turns out that also Susan has been following her own goals and serving her own ends through the entire film. And it's not as it was with Argento. It's not a pure no. virginal woman no. cleansing the place from evil bad women who who have self self serving needs. It's a woman with self serving needs needs purging the false gods from the place that she wants to claim to herself. And And that's why I would say that unlike Argento's version, which fumbles and stumbles with with its possible feminine and female empowering aspects, Guaracnino actually in the end pulls it off. I would say that this film is also when you you think about the Amish backgrounds of Susie Banyan, which is not very evident in the film when you when you look at it but actually it gets it gets even more complicated when you look at the mother of Susie Banyan on her possible deathbed with this uh, with this weird voice then you're instantly thinking when you're watching this film for the first time that oh this must be Madame Blanc because they actually look extremely similar so I was really confused throughout the runtime of the film is this the same character and what happened here and which time period is this and what, which time period is that and nevertheless I think uh, that when there's this kind of an Amish what you see in the flashbacks as some kind of a violence extreme uh, Amish movement and then you have the Nazi Germany references all kinds of extremism you can see that some things can start with the best intention, then they wind up in the shit house. Yeah, now, now that you mention it, because it uh, also, like you said, it, it's a good point to rise up that also O'Banion's original home is very oppressive. Yeah. Like she is physically punished for the act of masturbation. And, and then there is. That totally, yeah, I just still have to mention this one, that there's this totally, as we have discussed, totally different approach to this character of Susie Banyan. The, the original is this very innocent character, not interested in what's going on in the house, but just, god damn, I have to do this type of thing. But this new Susie Banyan is almost doing like an obnoxious degree, willing to follow whatever Madame Blonde tells, tells her to do. And as a viewer at the like two hour mark, you're completely lost, almost like if you have seen the original Suspiria, 
why is Susie Bannion still so religiously, fanatically involved in, in, in this whole coven when she has seen a lot of bad things happen? And at no point she basically raises an eyebrow like, oh, oh, this dancer completely collapsed during the dance and our, our show, show is over. Well, no biggie. Let's continue. Everything is a-okay. So, yeah. And there are two readings that you can take with that question. The first one is that the reason why she doesn't do it is because she is Mother Superiorum. Yeah, she, she knows the, the that. The high witch entity mm -hmm. thing. And she has her own plan going on. And essentially everything is playing to her hand at the moment. And she, as the high witch entity, doesn't really care about what happens to others. I was actually surprised that uh, Guadagnino mentioned the three mothers at all in this film. I was thinking this is going to be kind of a, like a one-off and we're going to do it like the in the original Suspiria where, where, where there was no mention of these three mothers. But when I look at the what Guadagnino has been planning, plotting to do possible sequels, I can see that that's probably why it's there. Because otherwise it doesn't serve any purpose, really. Uh, not really, not not in this film's case. Coming into the reviews, Land Magazine and Craig Zwick, or however you pronounce that, said, quote, Suspiria is largely a befuddling accumulation of shots and sounds to that never coalesce. Then Richard Brody from writing for The New Yorker said, quote, Guaracnino is so busy directing a movie about women in the abstract, witchcraft in the abstract, dance in the abstract, terrorism in the abstract, the Holocaust in the abstract, Berlin and Germany in the abstract, that he doesn't see the people, the places, the characters that he is filming. His camera sees nothing. End quote. And that's... That, that's a really a notion that I can't get behind and I can't agree with. That's too rough. I'm actually completely opposite to that opinion. I, I, I see there... Uh, a hell of a lot of the go-to accuses laid out against Christopher Nolan, who also has to has to face the same argument. Yeah, because and I, I would say in in here it stands even even weaker legs than it stands with Nolan. Okay, to an extent I agree with uh, Richard Brody here, but uh, also it's it's not such of a clear cut, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that you probably will not pick up on the first viewing anyway. So it's the kind of film that has more and more to give with each watching. And uh, I, I understand what, where he is coming from, but I do not fully agree with that view. Stephanie Sucker. I, I don't even understand where he's coming from. Well, it's, the, it's the, not really that abstract. Yeah, well, the uh, I think he's just seeing it the way that I see it in, in some ways, that there is... Uh, too much of perhaps of this 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 historical context sometimes that feels completely out of context but is still in the context in some way but it's not really completely comparable to the witchcraft scene it's kind of a separate entity happening on on the other side and uh, i think uh, in general all of this historical context it could have been left well more in the background that you would see things happening like in the beginning of the movie you have this character who is on the streets of Berlin and there's this protest going on you could do that but then you have like a newscasts showing and about these terrorists and 
and you spend a lot of time on that. And um, maybe they could have been more in the background when people are walking on the streets and something like that. But it's more on the nose. I really don't believe that that would have worked. I I think that that would have just more and more obscured the the whole driving a parallel between... But it's not so obscure. It's German not... as a society and the witches as a society. Mm. Well, Stephanie Sakarek of Time criticized the political plot point as, quote, an extra layer of needless complication. Well, Dario Argento said after watching this film, quote, it did not excite me. It betrayed the spirit of the original film. There is no fear. There is no music. The film underwhelmed me. When it comes to the accusation of not music, I really have to ask, what the fuck, Argento? And uh, I have to ask how it betrayed the spirit of the original film because this is completely its own beast. And I, I thought that Dario Argento would understand it completely when handing over the license to create this new film. So what spirit? Yeah, it, it actually, to do... To re-ask your question from Argento, what spirit? Yeah. Like, what what is the magnificent spirit of the original that Argento is even talking about? The one that you see in the Three Mothers, the movie. <laughs> Favorite performance, Dakota Johnson. Uh, on my end, it's it's Tilda Swinson's rubber penis. <laughs> it expresses everything and nothing. Very, very subtle, very nuanced performance. No, it, it goes, most definitely, it goes to Tilda Swinton, who, who plays three goddamn characters get, in the film. Get up, Tilda, and happy ending. What was that song? Get up, Tilda. Uh, favorite line? Uh, as mentioned already, love and manipulation, they share very houses very often. They are frequent bedfellows. For me, it would be, she was cold, but she wasn't afraid. She was thinking only of you. I thought that that was kind of nice, beautiful, poetic. Favorite kill? Uh, the Would be! Yeah, that one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that one where the body is being crushed into pieces during the dance. Oh, yeah. God damn, that's a magnificent kill. Yeah. Best kill in the film. Best kill in, in God knows how, in how many films. Holy shit, that was, that was actually really harrowing to see. Especially since Olga's death goes so much into the detail of what's happening to her and takes on fucking forever. And and at the end of it, she's not even dead. God damn it. Yeah. Fuck, that was blood curling. There was actually a lot of comments that, that this film was somehow hard to watch. I mean, it's hard to watch, yeah, but uh, I was kind of surprised that people are getting so disgusted about this film that they... They, this is why they give it lower ratings, because it's just too icky, yucky. I think this is going back to the thing or the different sensitivities in the American market where they are horrified to see sexual organs, especially penis, especially rubber penis, apparently. Or they are they might be... Maybe this is too realistic for them. I don't know. It's a different kind of filmmaking than what usually goes into the... Um, mainstream horror market there, I would say, probably. It is. It is more aesthetic. And like you mentioned, it, it is a hell of a lot more naked. Yeah. Because nudity is something that also ties into with 
a lot of the dance magic that the witches pull off. Yeah, there was especially like, like to 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 make notion of the final scene of the movie, mm-hmm. which essentially is group of women being naked and forming the the symbol of femininity as they are casting the final spell just before before the Mater Superiorum plot twist and the ensuing bloodbath. And in the promotion of the film, there was a scene screen from the film. This was exactly this uh, body torsion twisting scene. And it was reported that this footage was so intense that it traumatized those present. Quote, traumatized, actually. I don't know what that means, but that is crazy. That something actually is traumatizing audiences nowadays. But, well, I'm happy always that people are affected by horror movies. Mm-hmm. Three adjectives to describe the film. Mine would be moody, bleak, and reminiscent. Gray, geometric, realistic. Which is kind of funny when you're talking about witches. <laughs> yeah. Some of the kind of a we use magic scenes of the film, not the effect that they have, like I floor holes opening on the floor and breaking your leg or your body breaking under a spell not realistic but the way how they perform the spells that's actually pretty believable and uh, we sh- we should mention screenwriter uh, David Kaigani here still who had written a bigger splash for Guadagnino a year before he is not a fan of the original Suspiria and was not sure or wasn't really, really that excited, probably, to to write the script, but he did, and uh, but he had he mentioned to Guadagnino that he wants to take a certain approach, and this was this realistic approach. Uh, realistic approach was one that he wanted to implement in here, kind of look into how the witches might actually in a real world be like this, give them kind of a background story, and show how this might be possible. Would you recommend Suspiria from Luca Guadagnino? I most definitely would. Ooh. I do maintain I like this film better than Ar- Argento's original, even though I do like and love Argento's film as well. But I do think that this film does and says a hell of a lot more than what Argento ever did ever in his career. I would even say that uh, that Suspiria didn't have such of a huge ambitions, but stars just happened to align there, and now it's seen as a cult film. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Why Suspiria is a cult film, I can understand it. It's the exact same reason, I would say, why I love it so much, because it is uh, audiovisual feast. It is. But... Guadagnino's film, on the other hand, is nothing but ambition. Yeah. And I, I would say, most definitely, check out Guadagnino's film. Also, check out Argento's original. I would recommend that you even go as far as we did and watch both of the films kind of back to back. Because I, I do think that there's a, there's a lot to see in both of these movies and there's a lot to find in these movies. If you can actually uh, contrast them to to each other and look what they do and how they operate. 
yeah, this is certainly an artistic, ambitious, and distinctively uh, different to the original Suspiria, as it definitely should be. And it uses these uh, social backgrounds of the times to make it a little bit deeper and richer in narrative-wise. So does it pull off this successfully? I think perhaps with mixed levels of success here and there, but as I said, it, this kind of uh, all this RAF and BFBL noise could have been a little bit more subdued, but, but the point is taken and I do adore the visual style of the film. It's a really enjoy enjoyable film for a two and a half hour film and horror film at that. Not as disturbing as they say, just very artistic and fun for the whole family. For a very twisted family at that. You really know you're watching Suspiria 2018, Luca Guadagnino, when witchcraft is essentially Nazism. When you realize that as Klemperer works it out in the film, your delusions are lies that tell the truth. And Yukari especially should heed to this warning as you seem to be under the, the, the delusion that this podcast is any good. Uh, well, I am the pretentious uh, podcast host here, so following on that vein, of course we are. I guess that would be the point where I say I guess that would do it for this week. I guess you're right. What will be our next target on the podcast? Oh, well, we haven't gone to Latin America yet, Henrik, which is ridiculous, speaking that we're at the episode 110 and trying to call our podcast some kind of an international cinema podcast, so how about Latin America now? Yeah, I'm game. Okay, we could go to see Sin Nombre, and just to be as pretentious as everybody is saying, I am, I would like to finish this with a German poem. Der du von dem Himmel bist, alles Leid und Schmerzen stillest, denn der doppelt Elend ist, doppelt mit Ergigung füllest. Ach, ich bin des Treibens müde. Was soll all der Schmerz und Lust, süßer Friede, komm, ach komm, in meine Brust. That yeah, everything that you said. <laughs> well... Well, well said. I, I agree with everything. That was Wanderer's Night Song. Telling about... I, I have no idea what that was. That was telling about... That was basically a story about pain and uh, why this pain is desire. Fuck it, yeah. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Please, leave us a translation in our Facebook page. <laughs> Okay, tonight's film's director is uh, Edelenkin. Why did I say Edelenkin? It's still Luca Guadagnino and he acquired.